Hello and welcome to episode number 131 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Tuesday, February 14th, 2012. For this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Cliff Davis of Spiral Ridge Permaculture. Cliff is a permaculture designer and practitioner in Tennessee. Cliff Davis, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, let's just start by having you tell us a little bit about your permaculture practice in central Tennessee. Is that is that where you're located? That's correct. Yeah, we're in Summertown, Tennessee, so middle Tennessee. Um, basically, we have... Our landscape is a lot of dry finger ridges with a lot of rock and uh, clay soils. And we obtained a piece of land that was clear cut. And it was a great opportunity for us to see how we could apply the permaculture principles and ethics and design strategies and techniques to healing the land and regenerating the land and starting kind of these regenerative farming systems, which so far take a long time and a lot of effort to get started and get rolling. But um, we're really grateful for the opportunity so far. Well, uh, people who listen to this podcast are from all different parts of the world and all different parts of the country. Um, They may not be too familiar with the ecology of central Tennessee. I know that there are a lot of hardwood forests, hardwood forests there, and uh, you guys get pretty good rainfall. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the ecology of of where you're at? Yeah, we have an oak uh, hardwood forest uh, predominantly, and we get a substantial amount of rain. We get 52 inches a year of rain. Uh, actually, our zone just changed. The USDA zones just changed. We're in the 7A category now, which most of us from around here or living here have known that for a little while because we're pushing the edges with our plants and our plant uh, schemes. But uh, we have, you know, we have an encroaching amount of people moving to the hills here and and buying hunting land or moving from large sectors like cities in California that are moving here because it's cheaper to live here. Um, the, we basically live on what's called the Western Highland Rim. You start over in Eastern Tennessee. It's a pretty large mountain range, the Appalachians and the Cumberland Plateau. And it moves over into this area, which is the Western Highland Rim or the Highland Rim in general. And then that drops down into the kind of the river basin areas and over by Memphis. And then you get even closer to sea level over in that area. And then you move even, then there's the Mississippi River, of course. I have a lot of streams, a lot of rivers, a lot of water. And um, the soil structures are, like I said, they're, lots of rock here on these lands. Um, we have a significant amount of, of forest still left intact. A lot of people that fly over Tennessee, whenever they fly into Nashville, I always say it's 
they're always amazed by how green it is. So there are still a significant amount of trees left, even though, you know, as of a few years ago, the number one agricultural product was trees, which were mostly hardwood trees. That's slowed down significantly now due to the just the problems in our economy which is actually a benefit to the ecosystems, but it puts a lot of people out of work. So that's where we stand. Now the soils, are those mostly glacial soils or, or what's the, are you aware of what the primary soil formation processes have been in that part of the country? It's it's not glacial. It's, um, we have, uh, the glacial soils are, in just north of here, up in southern Illinois, some of the last or some of the first deposits actually were uh, deposited up there, and then you know, of course, Wisconsin, and then we have limestone-based soils here. So this, at one time, was mostly all underwater. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the land use history. Has this mostly been an area that has been used for forestry? Has there been much agriculture there traditionally? There's not been too much agriculture in this particular area of, of Tennessee, but the, the Native American Indians use it mostly as hunting amount of lightning activity that was here. And uh, it's not agriculturally, it's, you know, it wouldn't, it's nothing like near a river basin, but uh, there has been a kind of a long-standing use of the rock here to create ore. There used to be a lot of villages in the areas as well in the early uh, settlement times when they would take a lot of the trees down, create villages, and create, you know, mine the ore out of the ground to make various different things and then ship it all off. But since then, that's all been pretty much, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. And now there's, I think, one of the first or second largest settlements of, of Amish people in this area outside of Lancaster. So there, there's, there is a tradition now of a pretty strong tradition of agriculture in these lands just, by, just because of the large presence of the Amish community. So we have a lot of agricultural products available to us um, at any moment in time. Well, the forests, you you mentioned that the forests are largely intact, and, you know, my experience in some of these hardwood forests is there are different types of uh, areas that you can find. You can find areas that were never logged. Uh, you can find areas that were logged, you know, in the 18th century, um, right when the colonization and, and the pioneers were moving through some of these areas, and and at later dates as well, a lot of the times when the, when the early people moved through, if they were going to work on agriculture, you know, they would just clear everything out. If they were looking for specific uh, wood products, they would often target specific species, like the white pine, of course, was a notoriously good species that was targeted. Um, and then there's, you know, the later generation of more modern industrial forestry, which sounds like your area was hit by that in that it was clear-cut. And then, of course, there's areas that were just never cleared and are old growth. Of course, those are few and far between. Um, What has most of the forestry activity centered around in in that part of the country? Well, unfortunately, right now, there's 
you know, they're, they stopped, they haven't been taking down a whole lot of the hardwoods, but they were taking down a lot of the, you know, third growth, I guess, or so hardwoods. Um, and then there's also, you know, if you look across the ridge on my property, you'll see large plantations of, of pine, you know, fast growing pine, basically same kind of thing Sepp Holzer calls just conifer deserts, basically. Um, that's pretty, that's still pretty common, even though a lot of those large, uh, multinational companies have moved out of here and they started selling off their lands and, you know, in large tracks and clearing it or clearing hardwood lands and then selling that off, you know, to development. So that's been, that's basically the primary, uh, forestry going on in the state of Tennessee. Well, let's get into actually the the permaculture work that you're doing. Um, what are some of the challenges of implementing permaculture where you are? Some of the challenges right now, the, the first challenge was the fact that the land was clear cut and then, you know, basically just left, you know, they left piles everywhere and the soils, what little soils we have in these areas, a lot of that, of course, washed down into the creeks and, you know, down into the Mississippi by now. But um, some of the challenges right now is the fact that we lost a lot of our microbial networks because of that. Uh, by losing the trees, we lost our fungi and we lost our microbial networks that are within the soil structures. And since it is a, you know, a sloping ridge, uh, finger ridges, the water, the erosion happens fairly quickly. And sometimes we can get up to six inches, to seven inches of rain in, you know, 24 to 48 hours. So the biggest challenge was making the decision to spend our money on earthworks right away and kind of live very frugally and basically camping on the land while we spent our money on bringing in uh, equipment to dig swales and build ponds and embankments to catch water, which were, it's an ongoing process. We're having some more done this summer. But uh, that was one of the biggest challenges is trying to figure out where the key points are the key point strategy doesn't necessarily work on these kind of finger ridges uh, just due to the, the the shape of the land. And so we decided to do the swale systems. That's one problem. The other is, is just the large amount of rain causes the regrowth to grow back so fast and so thick in species that are useful for wildlife and in somewhat, in some cases, in a lot of cases, useful for us as well, but not so uh, culturally understood how to use them. So, you know, like sumac berries, you know, not everybody knows that you can use that as a lemonade alternative, but the birds love them, or blackberries. They're not very fun to deal with, but they taste lovely. So trying to establish gardens and, you know, and and systems fast enough to kind of not have the, the local, you know, the, the native species grow back too quickly to cover them and, and then take over all their nutrient sources and their light sources. 
that's the main problem right now is just the labor force of trying to keep everything managed. Well, talk more about that. I mean, what are some of the strategies that you've developed to kind of deal with this issue? Well, uh, one is the great work of a machete. <laughs> uh, using machetes has helped a lot, but I think that the key to all of it right now is animals. So we've started to uh, bring in different animals. First, we brought in we have a series of swales and ponds on the land and we brought in ducks so that we could get some fertilizer into the water and water carries nutrient the best. So, and then of course, soil is the best place to carry water, whole store fertilized water into the soil. Uh, that kind of helps us out with, the production models where we can grow more intensively and therefore we can manage better with our machetes and pulling weeds and having wolfers and apprentices. That's apprentices and wolfers have really been a very big part of what we're doing here. They have helped us out tremendously. Um, now we're looking at strategies of bringing in pigs to clear land and, you know, different stock ratios. We're still trying to figure that out. And our neighbors are using goats right now. They're they're learning techniques of goat brows, and they've got a every three weeks they rotate their pasture. It's not a pasture though; it's all brows. So they have actually a lot of protein, but and a lot of nutrient sources, but they don't get a lot of the parasites and problems that they normally would have on a pasture. Um, yeah, it's it's. You know, and it when you cut the plants down is really important too. If you do it in the fall, it's not as effective at slowing the growth rate down as it would be necessarily in the early spring. So a lot of it's just kind of human labor. And, um, you know, I also have a gas-powered weed eater keep me up on, on, on fence rows and stuff. But mostly just human labor right now and animals. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of your longer-term strategies are. I mean, I'm sure you're trying to get some uh, mid-serial species or mid-succession species established so that you won't be fighting with these early uh, succession species, you know, year after right. year. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy in, in that regard? Sure. Um, basically, one of our main strategies right now is we have— um, pseudo acacia which is the black locust and we are growing that as overstory trees right now in one section of our food forest and we're noticing a, it's and then we're under we're under it with clovers and vetch and winter peas and summer peas and all kinds of different nitrogen building plants and and pasture land and we're noticing that the the early succession is getting out-competed. It's getting shade, shaded out. We're, we're actually developing some sort of pasture system under there. And then our strategy would also to be underneath there to start planting our mid-succession trees like our persimmons or our mulberries or some apples. They're a little harder to deal with here. Um, but, you know, peaches... All the all the mid succession trees get planted underneath those, and then 
at later dates, our plan is to bring in different shrub layers, but then also to bring, we have a chicken tractors that we're utilizing in all these different areas. So we have meat birds that go into the chicken tractors in the summer to help keep uh, certain species at bay. And then uh, long-term, we would like to have some sheep to help us integrate into sort of these agroforestry systems that we're developing. But it's mostly using the uh, overstory trees right now that are also nitrogen fixers, so kind of multifunctional tree systems. Now, as a long-term strategy, that seems like you know, a really good way to go. And it seems like that's really what's ultimately going to give you the results that you're looking for. Obviously, one has to be patient to achieve those results. But uh, I wonder what your sense of that is in, in terms of the, the viability of that long-term strategy that you just described. Well, the I think the viability of it is high. You know, the profitability of it is low. So it takes a lot of inputs. But you know, we didn't really go into this farming system thinking that we were necessarily farming for ourselves. We were hoping that other people would take this on as we pass through this earth and and uh, and kind of see to it that, you know, these strategies, even though they take longer than a plow and, a, and disc and harrow and all these different, you know, mechanisms that agriculture use in modern day, uh, we know that they're they're just longer term. They're longer term strategies, and yes, they take a little bit more thought and time and and reevaluation. There's a lot of reevaluating all the time. You know, is this really working? Was this really a good idea? That didn't work. This did work. The feedback is just a constant loop of feedback. So, and that you know that can that can cause a lot of stress to the farmer um, or the land manager. But we have to understand that, you know, almost all land is degraded <laughs> right now on the earth. And we have to be the people who move these things forward. And, and if that takes time to understand and what to do and, you know, the techniques from certain areas might apply, but most of the techniques don't always apply. So a lot of the research and development we're doing is just somewhat by local knowledge and there are a lot of elders that have come before us over the last 20 years that have taught us what works here well for them and and then some of it is just pure failure <laughs> and uh that seems to work fairly well but i think design that's why we have to have the design as a practical piece of our farming systems because the failures aren't aren't so costly and so uh, they don't set you back so much in time, you know, if, if it's well designed. So do you have a nursery, a tree nursery there on site? I do. Yes. We, uh, we basically started a nursery on site to flesh out the skeleton of the place. Um, so we have grafted varieties of apples and pears and we have all kinds of different species that we've collected from local farmers that we know. And we also have a large collection of bamboo, uh, timber bamboo that we're studying as a replacement for the common pine forestry systems. And that's going pretty well. You know, we're learning a lot about propagation methods and 
you know, how much, how many things we actually need and it's going really well. We usually just buy plants in and then cultivate off of those. Like I said, we do our own grafting uh, when we can, when we have the time. And we're also trying out species that are kind of on the edge. You know, we're using some green tea right now that we sat out last year. It's it's still alive. It's looking good. Um, but that was questionable whether or not that species would make it here. So we're also kind of pushing the edge on some plant varieties as well. Well, I wonder um, if you could talk about your, you, mostly it sounds like you've been talking about your permaculture zones uh, two and three. Um, do right. you do a lot of gardening as well? Is, is is that also a challenge? Do you guys produce a lot of your own vegetables? Do, do the soils permit that? How does your soil building go uh, in that zone one? And um, we'll just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Our soil building uh, basically consists of um, earthworms, we have a probably, I don't know how many now, 50 or 60,000 earthworms uh, that are basically in a subterranean bin system. We feed them with our kitchen scraps, and we have a rabbit tree here that I started last year, and we've got over 15 rabbits now, and they supply us with a substantial amount of manure. Then that goes straight to the worms or straight into the garden beds. We also have been uh, working with compost teas that we learned from uh, Elaine Ingham of the Soil Food Web. So we've been we've been using that to build fertility in the system. And then, of course, we've been bringing in a lot of of nutrient. You know, I, there's a I brought in I have a dump truck that I bought for on farm use, and we just go and muck out stalls and let it sit and inoculate it with with uh, worms. Um, of course, in the future, hopefully we'll have a little bit more manure from pigs and other different animals that we'll be utilizing on the farm. We also run the chicken tractors pretty much constantly through the summer. We have, you know, fairly large chicken tractors that we move through all the systems to supply the nitrogen. But then what we feed our chickens and what we feed our animals is also of utmost importance. So we're feeding them rock dust and seaweed and a lot of things that we have to buy to increase the nutrient in the, you know, and the, um, and the different layers and levels of, of fertility in the soil so that eventually it'll be self cycling. We won't have to buy those nutrients anymore. But those are the types of things that we're feeding our animals. So we feed our animals well, and they feed our soil well. And right now, we have most of our beds are in raised bed systems, and they're mostly on, all on contour. And we also collect our own manure. You know, we do a humanure composting system that only goes on select varieties of trees and bamboos mostly the bamboos because they just love it. And once it's composted, that is. And then we also save our urine. <laughs> we use our urine a whole lot um, to help us supply nitrogen and various minerals and leachates that are coming out of us. We put that back into the soil. Uh, so far, we've, we've purchased a lot of different amendments and stuff, and we plan on doing more of that. 
we're using a lot of the expensive products just to increase the the fertility in the soil and to remineralization of the soil basically too what would you like to if you could maybe speak to someone who is listening to this or even if you could imagine being able to speak to yourself 10 or 15 years uh in the past what are some of the key things that through experience you would like to share with people so that they don't make some of the same mistakes that you have or so that they can you know maybe share some of your insights that you have gained through uh, many years of experience working in this realm? Well, I think that, you know, what I've learned recently, for the last 12 or 15 years, I've been studying agricultural systems kind of all over the place and working hands-on and reading a lot and learning that these all these different techniques and strategies. And what I've learned lately is that life and farming and cultural regeneration, regeneration farming systems, it's really all about relationships. And it's about building those relationships and having some sort of spiritual connection to the relationships that you're involved in every day. That's probably one of the most important things that I've learned really recently, actually. Um, Another thing is, is, you know, I think that studying books and taking a lot of courses is really great, but I think that getting your hands in the dirt and really just trying and getting over your fears and learning about your fears, um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. You know, that's one of the big things that Bill Mollison said was, you know, let's make as many mistakes as we can. Uh, don't be afraid to make any mistakes. There really aren't that many mistakes. It's just feedback and just don't give up you know that these systems these permaculture systems and this cultural repair systems that's going around and all these things to regenerate ourselves and the planet and i think that this is what we've kind of been sent here for if we've been sent to whatever your beliefs are but um i think it's our purpose now you know We've we've been handed a kind of a wounded mother, you know, the earth is wounded and and we just we have a job to do to do and that's to heal ourselves and heal the land. And permaculture its ethics are care. So it's really it's really a healing modality. I don't want to go there with it because it could cause all kinds of controversy, but, (laughs) but I think that it's a healing modality. You know, I've noticed that it's healed me. It heals the land. It, it's, um, it's more than just the techniques and strategies, but the biggest thing is, is study with people who are good, go to farms, learn, and then, start projects on your own or with a community or organizations and just have, have a lot of fun doing it. Well, I'm glad that you took the conversation in a more philosophical direction, um, <clears throat> maybe towards the second half of our interview. Uh, there, there are so many issues, I think, that the practical side of this interview has brought up. One of the first ones, and it's kind of one of my issues that I like to 
spend a lot of time thinking about and, and talking to people about. Um, and it's kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room for a lot of people who are into regenerative agriculture and holistic management and permaculture is that so many people who are in um, our generation really don't have a lot of access to land or capital. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how, I mean, obviously this is a structural problem and it's somewhat intractable, but I'm wondering if you have any ideas or thoughts on how a lot of people who want to get into permaculture and agriculture will be able to have access to land to be able to do so. Oh yeah, this is this is you know these are some of the main some what some of my main interests that I studied in college were kind of how do we get along and how do we how do we uh, create societies where people are happy and and what I've realized in that is that the system the the ownership the very structure of the ownership of land is kept and debt has kept us so far away from being able to access land and that in and of itself actually degenerates our culture. So, but by not having a land ethic, basically. Um, but now you find all these beautiful people, young women and men that want to move on to land, want to buy land. Banks aren't giving you land loans right now. Most people are in debt, and um, that causes all kinds of problems because people have to keep jobs and do all these different things in order to pay back their substantial amounts of school debt or whatever it might be. You know, I think building community and or studying communities or looking into communities is probably one of the most strategic ways that someone who might have bad credit or no credit or no money, you know, the, that might be a great approach to to settling that question, finding a community that fits their values, what they're doing, what they want to do, um, traveling around to different communities. In our case, we chose to to have there's all kinds of different models, micro loans, micro institutions that, that can, there's, there's people with resources that can actually help other people that don't have resources. So we had some friends of ours that helped us buy our land. They basically bought all the land and they're our neighbors now and they financed it for us. So that's, you know, like finding a needle in a haystack, but I think the biggest thing would be first we need to change the laws of the land, which, you know, we can look to Gandhi. We can look to that whole movement that he started, the Satyagraha movement. You know, these are things that we, these are movements that we need to be having in the United States. The native Americans need, you know, they need their land. They still feel like they don't even own their land. Not that they, that's part of their belief, but when every treaty has been broken, it's it's hard to believe anything that anybody tells you, I guess. But having access to land is one of the most, the hardest parts of the whole thing. And I know that there's access to lands in cities, you know, and it, it takes a lot of bureaucratic work. 
so there's that side of it, you know, trying to get land donated or to get tenure on a small piece of land in a city is even hard. And these are the struggles. These are also, these are some of the main struggles that we have in order to create a culture base that's based on land ethic. So, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that if people follow their heart and their heart is to be healing the land, healing themselves, working the land, just keep that vision and use your intellect to find your ways through all of it. But I think it'll all work out, you know, but I also think that we need some sort of movement to, to get land available for people like nature conservancy or they're just, there's all these organizations that have plenty of resources to help, help in this struggle. Well, now that we're talking about these issues that uh, border on the political, and of course we are in the midst of this Occupy movement that is radicalizing many of the young people throughout the country, um, and us permaculturalists, I mean, we are, sometimes it feels like we're an army because we spend a lot of time talking to each other and, you know, going to classes or, you know, reading one another's books. But we are actually a very, very small minority in this country and around the world. And I think one of the problems that I have seen and one of the big challenges is, is that so many of us can see this vision of a permanent agriculture and a permanent culture, and we can see it very clearly. And we can see not necessarily, you know, what all those techniques and strategies will look like 100 years out into the future, but we know basically what we need to do to get started and, and to get the ball rolling. Yet we have a very hard time sharing that vision with others uh, and them, you know, being able to grasp it and compre comprehend it. So I wonder in the context of the Occupy movement, I wonder if this is something that these folks who are in this movement, I mean, obviously it's a very broad movement with a lot of different opinions and ideas, but I wonder if this is an idea that, in general, these young people are ready for, or if they are, you know, have grown up in a cultural context, which really makes it difficult for them to share this vision with us. Mm. Well, I do think that it's difficult to share the vision in the, you know, in today's cultural context. Um, that's for sure. We're, we're basically blinded by just, large amounts of technology, electronic technology, um, which actually takes us away from the land a little more. You know, a lot of children are raised, they don't even go outside. Uh, we have high obesity rates. We have all these different problems. And basically it all boils back to the land ethic and the, the misuse of, 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 of land. And... You know, I think that I think that the Occupy movement is a definite cry from the youth of today saying and and it's not just the youth, it's you know, the activists, the elder activists as well, saying that, you know, we we don't want any more. But what we're trying to say is is I think what we're trying to say is is okay, we know the problems of the system. Um, and how do we move forward with our vision of solutions? And 
I pray that it's the youth of today that goes to school and or gets a piece of pro- their parents' property and they start to change this kind of narrative that we've we've got you know our our ourselves entrapped in basically there's a story of fear and everything you know nature's scary and all these different things that just aren't necessarily true and so we we kind of need a new story so i feel as though actually as permaculturists we're also storytellers so we're trying to recreate the earth by telling a new story so by constantly looking at the 99% and the 1% i'm a, i'm a little scared that we're taking away from what we really need to be doing even though that's a really important part of the whole puzzle and i don't know how to put the puzzle together quite yet you know but i i think that i think there's a lot of good strategies and solutions out there as of now it's just um people are just now really waking up to what the problems are they're really realizing that this is a fear-based culture. This is a consumer culture. We can't go on the way we're going on. We can't use fuels the way we're doing. We can't keep polluting the earth and the water and ourselves. And the youth know that. They always know that. But now they're starting to speak up against it. And I think it's crucial. you know. And I've seen a lot of permaculture people teaching at these Occupy movements about the solutions. Because as you and I know, and probably a lot of the listeners, is that the problems can get you really depressed. And um, I think if we can go in with a smile and a new story and offer solutions, I think that's that's where I'm coming from. You know, I want to, that's basically my role in, in many respects in a broad view. <laughs> well, as we also know, the problem is the solution. Um, yes. So, you know, maybe people waking up to the nature of this problem uh, will catalyze the solution in and and of itself. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to add, Cliff Davis? Uh, I know that you uh, are—actually, we should give a shout-out to KMO, who prompted us to uh, conduct this interview many months ago, and you and I both uh, had some missed connections and were unable to. But it seems like now is an opportune time because, as KMO mentioned— uh, on a previous recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast, you're having a in which actually you appeared. You're having a permaculture design course in Belize. So I wonder maybe you could uh, conclude by talking a little bit about that. Oh, that'd be great. Yes, we're having um, on February 20th to March 2nd down at the Maya Mountain Research Farm in the Toledo district of Belize. We're having a permaculture design course with Albert Bates and myself and others. And then there's followed up by an advanced permaculture design course with Jono Niger and Eric Tonsmeyer. Some people would know Eric Tonsmeyer from the perennial vegetables book and co-author of edible forest gardens with David Jackie. And that's all at the Maya mountain research farm, which is www.mmrfbz.org. And it'll be a fabulous adventure. Uh, It's going to be an adventure for me. I'm flying down, very excited, and we'll basically meet at the end of a road, get onto a canoe, and go up river to a 
a, a permaculture site that's in the middle of the jungle as part of the nature reserve there. And they have all kinds of different species selection. They're using, um, they have a lot of uh, overstory trees and understory trees already set up and agroforestry systems. And they have solar water pumping. And I'm really looking forward to it. There's also, of course, the fact that Mayan elders are living in those areas and those parts. And it's going to be a, a very... I've, in some sort of way, I want to say mystical portal, you know, but also it's going to be, it's going to be everything you can imagine in a permaculture course and then plus the advanced course. So it's something that people, I would like to, I'd like to see more and more people making it to, that's for sure. Well, of course, I will link to the website that you mentioned on the show notes for this episode of the podcast so that people can find out more and, um, if people can afford to go and, and feel like this is yeah. something that they really would get a lot out of, I'm sure uh, the cultural experience in and of itself is worth the, pr- worth the price of admission. And then, of course, there's all the permaculture experience and knowledge people will gain by being around folks like you and others. So uh, I would definitely encourage people to check that out and really consider going. Yes, I'm very excited about it. Well, Cliff Davis, thank you very much, and thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you for joining me on this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. Oh, thank you as well. I really appreciate the work you're doing as well. Keep it up. <laughs> that concludes my interview with Cliff Davis, and apologies for not getting this out sooner. I know that the permaculture course in Belize is only well, less than a week away, um, and it may be difficult for some of you to if you are interested in going to make plans at the very last moment, but um, as many of you know, I'm constrained for time, so I was unable to get this uh, podcast out last week. I'd like to once again thank Cliff Davis for joining me and for sharing many of his experiences, and again, I'd like to thank KMO of the Sea Realm Podcast for suggesting and facilitating that this interview would take place. And that concludes this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.